and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Enrique Guerra, Instructor of Business Law at the University of Central Florida. We will discuss his draft article, Breaking Bad Promises. So welcome back to the show, Enrique. Thank you for having me back. I, uh, I've been on my best behavior. <laughs> the pleasure's all mine. Uh, as you as you know, I totally love this paper. I think it's funny, provocative, and really thoughtful at the same time. So I'm really looking forward to talking with it about t- talking to you about it. Thank you, thank you. It's it has been um, it's been uh, quite a paper, and I, I have to say um, something about just the uh, behind the scenes of the paper. Uh, the, the funnest uh, one of the most. Um, enjoyable aspects of it has been really getting a lot of feedback. It's been striking a nerve and I've, you know, been able to add some examples and uh, think about the problem more deeply. Uh, so I've actually, uh, I've been enjoying myself with the paper. Mm, mm, yeah, I can tell. <laughs> um, so Enrique, for, for listeners who may not be that familiar with contract law or specifically with contract theory, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the promise principle and what it is. That's a great question. The promise principle, really, it's the foundation of contracts. Um, and it's, it's the way I look at it, right? There's a, there's a, there's an overlap, but not a perfect overlap between, uh, the morality of making and breaking a promise and, uh, contract law. And, uh, the way contract law looks at it, right, there's a series of uh, formal requirements or elements um, that have to be met in order for a promise to be legally enforceable. That is to say, in order for an agreement to actually be a contract with le- legal repercussions. And one of these elements, and, and, and by the way, I, I need to step back. This, this, The word promise principle, um, big shout out to Charles Freed at Harvard. Uh, he wrote this beautiful book, one of my favorite contract theory books, Contract as Promise. And he really elaborates this promise principle. And 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 that has just generated an entire uh, legal literature. Um, it's part of our legal uh, contract lore as much as any classic common law case is. And, and one of the great things about Freed's work is just that he tries to unify all this body of contract common law cases. But I noticed there was a blind spot in the in the book, um, and it bothered me. And the blind spot was um, there's really not an in-depth, really no discussion of one of the essential elements of a contract, which is that the contract have a lawful purpose. And so this idea, and it seems to be very consistent with morality, almost a, a throwaway, right, that the contract, um, uh, if, if the contract uh is inconsistent with public policy goals or or certain conceptions of morality or the law itself think of the idea of a drug deal right that's just sort of the classic example of an unenforceable agreement you know uh, there may be an understanding between the participants of that type of a uh, a deal but the courts are not going to really dirty their hands and enforce uh this and so um it's it's that's what I wanted to explore, this sort of underexplored, under theorized area of what about promises that are not lawful or even if they are lawful, um, maybe are inconsistent with certain moral norms. And so um, what I do in the paper that I think is useful and uh, original is I'm defining uh, or I create this concept of an illicit promise so that I can look at both illegal agreements and the illegal bargain doctrine 
of the common law. But I'm also fascinated by drug deals, uh, by just immoral agreements, if you will. Mm-hmm. Well, so maybe you could talk a little bit more about this distinction between illegal and immoral promises, like the sort of universe of illicit promises. What role, if any, does the promise principle or should the promise principle play in that context? And is it the same for all the different kinds of illicit promises? You know, that is an excellent question. And that is the paper in a nutshell. Once I do the deep dive and look at, you know, and, and define um, uh, deals or bargains or agreements that are either illegal or illicit, I create this sort of fourfold taxonomy of uh, an illegal agreement that might be still consistent with morality. Um, I, I should say I just visited Montgomery, Alabama, and I was at the Rosa Parks Museum. And one of the things that um, uh, I didn't realize about the Rosa Parks incident, one of the great moments in American history, but after Rosa Park, Parks was uh, arrested for refusing to step to the back of the bus, um, the black community in Montgomery, Alabama, created informally a, a carpool uh, uh, system. And that was a real series of, if you will, informal agreements that you know, were motivated by a moral purpose, right, to protest a second class treatment. But that the local uh, city officials, right, the segregationists, uh, the racist officials deemed as an illegal agreement. And they actually went to the local courts to uh, declare the uh, carpool arrangement uh, illegal. Uh, and so I, I, I look at all of these types of uh, um, um, illicit uh, promises, including um, uh, classic illegal and immoral agreements, uh, agreements that might be moral, but that contravene some law. Um, a point that's not so esoteric, given the, the so you know explosion of federal regulations and federal legal, uh, criminal legal liability. And so I go down that list. What really motivates me about looking at all of these types of agreements, and that would be that would be a very long discussion. We wouldn't have time in this uh, podcast, but is you know what's the unifying principle? And what bothered me, or the puzzled me, right? As a as as a, a, a sort of a looking at this with my scholar hat on, is there is what. Um, philosophers call an antinomy, and I'm calling a moral antinomy. And an antinomy is a special type of paradox where you have two statements that are logically true and logically coherent, but when you put them side by side, they create a friction. They are, they are intention or contradiction. And in my case, with this whole universe of illicit agreements, um, my, my concern was is that and, and let me fall back on the drug deal right that's sort of the classic paradigm case um with a drug deal right um it's you could say the agreement is unlawful we can even talk about the morality of the agreement providing you know dangerous drugs uh but um at the same time right uh, uh so it, it well let me put it this way the promise principle would have us would say that it would be wrong, morally speaking, and if and if you had a legally binding uh, 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 contract as well, you know, legally speaking, it would be wrong to break a promise. But at the same time, the antinomy or paradox occurs in that if you um, you know if you break your promise, um, you, of course you're committing a, a wrongful act. But if the promise itself is to commit a wrongful act, right, keeping the promise. Uh, will run afoul of moral principles and in some cases, you know, uh, great legal consequences. And so that was, that ultimately is what motivates the paper, right? Um, how can we address this, this paradox of, you know, uh, either I keep my promise and, uh, you know, which is morally what I'm required to do in most instances, right? Uh, generally speaking, 
But if the prom- the content of the promise itself is immoral, then I'm I'm in a bind. What do I do? And if, I, if I'm not mistaken, you refer to this as the the Breaking Bad problem. I, I wonder if you could you could point to sort of the examples or kind of use some of the examples you use in the paper to illustrate the nature of the Breaking Bad problem, kind of in practice or like in reality, and sort of what that tension looks like from a sort of concrete perspective. Great. Thank you for asking that, because uh, as you can see, you know, sometimes abstract reasoning is never as powerful as actual examples. And in fact, the, the actual example that motivated the paper was when I saw the pilot episode of Breaking Bad for the first time. Um, I actually came to the Breaking Bad party quite late. I try to stay away from TV uh, so I can focus on my reading and writing and, and family obligations and things like that. But, I, you know, Breaking Bad, I was just mesmerized as many people as many people were. And that initial pilot episode, right, what it presents is a, a criminal partnership, right? You have uh, uh, Walter White, this uh, uh, ordinary high school chemistry teacher, but he's been diagnosed with a very severe form of cancer, uh, you know, fatal uh, terminal disease. And his former student, uh, Jesse Pinkman, right, who's sort of a, a ne'er-do-well, um, small-time dealer, um, and the two join forces in a very odd way. Um, uh, Jesse's very skeptical of Walter White's decision to enter into the drug business, the meth trade in that particular series. Uh, but they do end up uh, joining forces. And I wanted to explore that uh, because, um, you know, one of the things that's interesting about Breaking Bad, the series, is that uh, Walter White's initial motivations are could be described as good, right? He wants to provide for his family. Maybe it's misguided, but we have, this goes back to Antigone, right? We have these moral duties to our, to our family. And, but at the same time, he, he, he tries to um, further that interest, that moral interest of providing for his family by engaging in this very dangerous, illegal, and uh, you know, illicit uh, deal, right, with his former student. And so you see the antinomy right then and there, right? Is Jesse Pinkman and, you know, is he obligated then once he agrees, uh, you know, to buy an RV and to help teach uh, the chemistry teacher, you know, how the ingredients necessary to produce their illicit wares. Um, And, and, you know, it's fascinating. And I have to shout out Margaret Montoya here. Um, and, and actually, even in the uh, one of the episodes of Breaking Bad, uh, um, I think it's called uh, Black and Blue, if I'm not mistaken. No, Azul y Negro. It's in Spanish. Uh, blue and Black. Uh, there's actually a narco corrido uh, to the uh, devoted to the uh, Heisenberg character who Walter White becomes. And um, Margaret Montoya had mentioned to me um, that there's actually a whole uh, universe of uh, Mexican Spanish ballads, narco corridos that are singing, um, in some cases, yes, the praises of drug lords, but in other cases, singing about sort of the uh, code, right, that gangsters and drug dealers have, that when they make a promise, you know, regardless of the legal legality of their agreements, they sort of have a moral you know, a code of honor to keep their word. And um, and so that really, it's just a, to me, I can't think of a more, con- well, there are other examples, but that's a very concrete example of this, of this moral paradox, you know, making a promise to do what is effectively something illegal or illicit or immoral. Um, what do you do in that situation? You know, you're Jesse Pinkman. Uh, what do you do? You know, uh, once you agree to the promise, um, you are, uh, you know, what are your obligations? I mean, it's one thing that has always struck me as kind of 
a weakness of traditional contract theory, especially in relation to promises, is this kind of background Puritanism of the sort of uh, normative assumptions behind the theory fails to describe people's actually lived experience and how people do promising. You know, that's wonderful. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned it because you're right. You know, um, even, um, and you know, you know, of course, Stuart Macaulay, those who teach contracts, this idea of relational agreements and what business persons actually, you know, how they actually make and enforce their agreements. And this, it, it really is much wider than that. But, um, and, I, and you're right, this paper t- taps in, into, uh, into uh, you know in, into that into that stream. What's fascinating about this is you know when I began the paper, it really began as a small side project. It's going to be a very short, um, really short, uh, not not a full length article. It was simply going to be here's you know m- maybe even began as a blog post. You know, here's my contribution to the Breaking Bad literature. There's actually quite an extensive literature, um, moral philosophy, uh, legal scholarship, all kinds of things, religion. Uh, there's, a, there's a, I believe there's a course at Claremont, Claremont McKenna College, all devoted to uh, Breaking Bad. But then as I um, – your point is well taken about the Puritanism of, of our legal doctrine because um, as I explored further, I just found these illicit promises everywhere you turn. And, and, and I'll give you some examples just from the recent news, and, it, and I'm debating whether to – just mention them in the paper or, or, or build them out as full uh, examples. But think of the college admission scandals of the, of, of earlier this year. In fact, uh, you know, um, because uh, some of the people indicted uh, were celebrities, you know, but all of them were very wealthy parents uh, who in essence made these illicit agreements with a ringleader, right. To get their children into college, you know, they would pay under the table. Um, and um, you know, it's 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 it, this what the paper is trying to tap into that. Um, I'm also thinking of these collusion allegations, much more controversial once we're in the impeachment terrain. But ultimately, the whole issue with Ukraine, right, and uh, and President Trump and you know his people is almost an attempted illicit promise. You know, one can frame it that way. And, and in other words, this is much more. Uh, this could be more common, right? A, a lot of uh, malfeasance um, uh, could ultimately be. Um, in this domain and, and and what do we do about it mm. well one thing that also struck me is that you know you're talking about illicit promises and how we ought to think about their enforceability but it struck me that there are all number of of licit promises that are still unenforceable as a legal matter, right? You know, like to have and to hold, right? I mean, the the law doesn't enforce that, right? I'm going to love you till the day I die, right? I mean, that's not an enforceable promise. And yet, you know, we still think that it's morally binding, right? Even though the law wouldn't recognize it as a contractual obligation, you know, you just, that's why I went on this podcast. You just helped fill a blind spot I had in my paper, going back to my fourfold taxonomy, right? If we look at two dimensions of promising, right, of the promise principle, the legality of the promise, just in a formal legal sense, is there some, you know, law uh, against bribery or something, you know, or, uh, you know, a law classifying a substance as an illegal one, um, but also, um uh, you know, the morality of a promise, right? And then we have various moral theories we could talk about to uh, look at the moral content of a promise. But uh, the fourfold uh, classification would include promises that are putting it in a very um, 
uh, Pickwickian fashion, you know, not illegal and not immoral, right? Legal and moral promises that shouldn't raise any issues. Uh, but that's a great example of one, right? It's not illegal to uh, uh, enter into a marriage vow, but that won't be. And in fact, probably that's the moral thing, right, to, uh, uh, to do, uh, to signal that uh, seriousness of the co- of the commitment. Uh, but yeah, it won't be enforced. And, and, and uh, so I that uh, l- like I say, I see these things everywhere now. I, I look. <laughs> well, so maybe you could talk about some of the efforts people have made to try to solve this moral problem and why you think that these other efforts are are not effective. Brian, that is a great question. And thank you for asking because uh, and I have to answer that question by um, describing two broad headings, really. Moral philosophers have attempted to uh, address this conundrum, but so have legal theorists. And what moral philosophers have done, I won't spend much time there. I'm, 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 I'm quite underwhelmed. Um, they have either – they've taken one of two approaches, either to say that if a promise has an immoral content to it, then it's not a promise. So that's uh, just an example of defining the problem away. Um, or there's a there's a paper with a wonderful, wonderful title called Wicked Promises, and in that paper – uh, a novel theory is proposed that no, a, a, an immoral promise is just as much a, a, a promise as a moral one, but immoral promises do not generate uh, obligations on the promise or on the person making the promise. And again, um, it's uh, it's it's it doesn't address my concern is that people, let's say, in a drug deal, who make an Im- set of illicit or immoral promises, uh, or even illegal ones, might still feel themselves to be obligated to have to keep their word. And that's the phenomenon that I want to try to explain and understand. Now, on the other broad heading, legal theorists, I have to say that this is just a wonderful part of the uh, contract literature. Um, there are three really powerful uh, theories have been championed uh, as to uh, to explain the promise principle and, and, and how and when the promise principle kicks in. Uh, the three theories are broadly the will or autonomy theory of contracting or promising, the expectation theory, and the consequentialism theory of promising. And the will theory I'll discuss first because we can connect that back to Charles Freed uh, and his um, original work on the promise principle. Uh, for a lot of contract theorists, including Freed, it's um, a promise is a product of one's autonomy or free will. And so uh, a um, a promise becomes binding when you know one sincerely makes a promise. There are two blind spots, though, with this theory. It's, it's a good theory, um, you know, very intuitive. But the two blind spots, uh, from my perspective, are one uh, I, I call reversibility. In other words, that well, if I if my will is what makes a promise, then I can just undo a promise by having a you know equal uh, and, uh, reaction to that, an equal will uh, uh, to not make a promise or to undo a previous promise. And, and, and that can't be right, right? The whole purpose of the theory is to explain why promises are binding. But the other pro- uh, problem um, is, uh, and perhaps even a deeper one, is that the will theory, it doesn't distinguish between or or, or try to draw a distinction between moral and immoral promises, right? It's just, it's just what matters is the intention of the of the of the promisor. This now takes us then to the expectation theory, and there's uh, just um, uh, which is associated with another theorist, an English contract theorist, Patrick Ataya, and his theory actually is very is very uh, very powerful. Um, a lot of common law cases about contracts can be explained with the expectation theory. The nutshell, uh, the basic of the idea is that um, let's not focus on the promisor, let's focus on the promisee, the person receiving the promise, and if I make a promise. 
and that generates an expectation in the promisee and the person receiving the promise, then that's when the promise principle should kick in. But again, we have the same blind spot. That is to say, um, it's uh, we don't distinguish between the content, or this theory doesn't distinguish between you know uh, the content, uh, moral content or immoral content of a promise. And that could be problematic, right? That's what we want to explain, which promises um, are, are, are necessarily uh, binding even yeah, based on their status. Uh, finally, this idea of a consequentialist theory, what we do there is, is and this, this it, it, it does not do justice to uh, 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 summarize this in a, in a few sentences, but the basic idea here is, um, is you look at sort of what are going to be the effects of keeping versus breaking a promise. This theory, and I, I say this in, in the paper, pun intended, you know, is, is somewhat more promising in that, well, okay, um, most likely immoral promises will generate bad consequences, whereas moral promises won't necessarily. And so that gives us some criterion, right, for distinguishing uh, which uh, uh, promises uh, uh, the promise principle applies to. My problem there, though, and it's not really my problem, it's just the general critique of all utilitarian theory is that consequentialism is forward-looking, right? We have to sort of guess and predict what the consequences will be. And I will say that, you know, it can be concerning that an immoral promise, an immoral promise, I should say, apologize, an, immo- an immoral or illicit promise might actually produce good consequences. And so the consequentialist theory is that, well, there's no problem. Then we have a, you know, promise principle applies. And so what I do in the remainder of the paper is to try to figure out a solution, you know, try to figure out, can we, um, uh, you know, is there a third way? Is there a third way to look at this problem? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I gotta say, especially, I mean, although I generally tend to be very sympathetic to consequentialism as a theory of justification, as a descriptive matter, it seems to totally miss the point of of promise theory. Right. You know, and and, and that's um uh, th- th- that's an excellent point um, because. It's it's illicit agreements do generate uh, you know, do generate a concern you know and, and ultimately we have this this utility monster problem right that you know if, if Felicity Huffman to use the example of the college admission scandals she receives greater utility from her daughter getting admitted from a you know in, based on an illicit agreement to pay off a proctor to fill in the right answers then you know whereas my son who's now applying for college you know uh might get uh, or i might get lower utility you know uh who's to judge that you know the 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 theory does break down you know when you try to make it operationalize and you know these are critiques that are that are out there and you know what i end up doing in the paper first i have to confess is when i began writing it um soon after seeing the pilot episode of breaking bad i just thought the problem was insoluble right it was just insoluble because there's just so many variables going on, especially once we're in the realm of morality, um, even law, right? Even defining what conduct is lawful or not can be challenging. Uh, but in the, in the in, once we're in the domain of morality, where there where there are multiple theories of of ethics. Um, but what I ended up doing, just through discussions with colleagues and um, and uh, talking with various uh, friends and colleagues, is is I ended up proposing a what I'm calling a creating a common law framework or a common law approach. One of the interesting interesting things of the common law is that it's actually, and, and, and I should say, when I began the paper, I actually scoured through all the moral philosophical literature just to see there's got to be some solution to this somewhere. Um, when I when I didn't find those a, a, a good solid solution, I kind of reverted back to the common law tradition, and it turns out common law is a very 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 sophisticated body of law here. And one of the things that the common law does is distinguish between void and voidable promises. 
And here I want to shout out another colleague of mine, Daniel O'Gorman, uh, who, you know, uh, although he didn't bring the distinction to my attention, he's done some work in this area. And I did some deeper thinking about this. And the idea is that maybe we can say, maybe we can uh, be, uh, you know, I'm inspired here by the common law to come up with an idea of voidable versus uh, void promises, you know, and uh, trying to figure out when an illicit promise is merely voidable as to when it's void. Now, this sounds very technical. And I, I know when I was a law student, uh, this was not my finest hour, you know, distinguishing void and voidable agreements. But the basic idea is that a agreement is void, um, it's considered void ab initio from the outset. You know, it's never, never a contract, never enforceable, no legal, uh, theoretically, no moral consequences if we, if we adopt this approach. Whereas voidable, you sort of look at the context and you say, well, you know, it might be a, there might be a greater injustice occurs if we don't enforce uh, certain promises. Uh, the, the classic example here in a um, just in a uh, uh, legal uh, scenario would be an unlicensed contractor. So an unlicensed contractor, technically, you know, um, if uh, those agreements, right, uh, don't comply with the law if the contractor needs a license. But if the contractor does good work anyways and is charging a fair price, you know, most courts will adopt a flexible approach and find a way of enforcing agreements with unlicensed contractors. Not always, of course, uh, but um, uh, and so this idea of avoidable agreement that the uh, the victim of the illicit promise or the illegal bargain, as the case may be, um, they have a choice as to whether to, OK, I'm going to comply with the agreement or not. And so I try to develop that theory in the last part of the paper. Right. And if I understand it correctly, I mean, you sort of look at a kind of harm principle and ask what harm would result from enforcing or not enforcing the the promise. Is that right? Yes. And I have to say um, uh, somewhat sheepishly, that you know, uh, the harm principle, it's a quagmire in and of itself. Right. You know, what is a harm? Um, fascinating just to uh, 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 the whole area of harm. But what I've done there is to sort of narrow it down and pin down. Yes, I, I'm taking a harm approach. And what I do here is, first of all, I say, okay, I need to limit myself to sort of take, a again, a common law approach. Um, uh, how does the common law define a harm? And generally, right, a harm is not just any setback to an interest. It's when there's an invasion of a legally protected right or a legal interest or a privilege or immunity to borrow the Hofeldian, you know, scheme. Um, and so um, um, what I do is I say, OK, um, we need to, uh, we need to figure out a way of distinguishing between justified and unjustified harms. And again, the common law, I think, does a very good job with the law of necessity. Right. When you have this situation involving a tragic choice, oftentimes the law will say, will excuse or justify the choice of a lesser evil. Um, but, but I will say, right, distinguishing between a justified and unjustified harm, I will concede that that can be a very difficult question. But if we can narrow down what harms are justified and which are unjustified, um, then we can, um, then what I do is I look at the location of the harm and where does, where does the harm fall? Um, if the harm falls on a third party, somebody external to the contract, then I'm willing to say, you know, this is void. Um, whether it's an illicit uh, from an immoral point of view or from an illegal point of view, I want to know where that harm falls. And um, if the harm, however, is just localized uh, internal to the people making the promise, uh, then I'm more comfortable saying it should be voidable. The parties themselves should decide. Um, now, I, I will say I still have to flesh this out. This is why this is a working paper or a draft. Um, I may have opened up more uh, um, you know, Pandora's box here by taking this approach. 
Uh, but I'm trying to sort of muddle my way through a framework so that we can at least look at, rather than define the problem away, maybe we can have a, a set of principles to uh, 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 create a more satisfactory solution to the problem. Right. Well, so Enrique, in closing, I mean, I wonder if you could reflect on what the kind of broader goal of your project and the other people engaging in this field of of study is. I mean, is the purpose to provide a descriptive theory of what people are doing and experiencing when they engage in promising? Or is there necessarily a normative element in, in the sense that, you know, we can't just describe the kind of internal sense of obligation, but also have to reflect on sort of the normative valence of promising in order to decide whether in fact a promise exists in the first place? You know, that, that is really an excellent question, and it's the $64 question, right? Like, like why should anyone care about this? And and, and I agree that both of those dimensions are important. And I'll put it this way. You know, I'm always, I'm always um, uh, somewhat reluctant to enter into normative debates because I don't want to be the guy that says, look, all illicit promises have to fall by the wayside. You know, I want to look at the logic of the people of the, making those illicit promises and, and and try to explain that more from a, this descriptive point of view. But ultimately, I think there is a normative point here or a normative aspect because what I really care about here and and, and why I think this is important is because um, why it's worth, you know, usually this idea of an illicit or illegal bargain is sort of considered a, a sort of an outlier. But I think it's very, I think it's a very important outlier because it does, it should inform what the outer limits of the promise principle are, you know, and I, and I don't want to say that I have the final word on this, not by any means. I just want to propose a alternative framework and have others join this conversation with me and think about it with me. And, um, um, the other thing, right. I think those sort of the larger project here is this uncertain relationship between law and ethics. Uh, the course that I teach a uh, business law course, it's formal title is legal and ethical environment of business. And so I'm always, you know, I'm actually to me, and, and I teach my course, I teach undergraduates. And so I, I like to teach business law as uh, almost as a humanity, as a liberal arts uh, uh, course, you know, and I'm really fascinated by, you know, common law. We have the, the, the law of deceit, you know, fraudulent misrepresentation. We have the law of contracts. We have the promise principle. There's a lot of overlay with, 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 with ethics and morality, but that overlay, what's fascinating, right, is that it's not perfectly overlaid. In some, in some cases, the overlays are very small sliver, and so um, I think that's what I want. I, uh, I, 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 what I want this paper to be all about—to explore this overlay between law and morality in the, in the context of promises. Awesome. Well, it was a great paper. I really enjoyed it, and I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me about it, Enrique. No, thank you, Brian, and thank you for your wonderful podcast series and for um, making my commute such a joy. Now. Los sacaron ya sin vida 
para llevarlo al panteón. El güero dijo a Simón, antes de hacerse la bola, te juro que solo muerto me quitarán mi pistola. Llegaron dos contestables, llegaron por mala suerte, para poder desarmarlo. Como no seas así, por ir. Los que quieran desarmarme, por me tendrán que matar. Nada más con un disparo, el güero quedó tirado, allí acabó con su vida, el güero polvo mentado. El guasimón, este anillo es parís, quítamelo de mí. A su nombre, González, su apelativo, desde vivo y muy valiente, de San Antonio nativo.